It's great to be together again, isn't it? I'd like to tell you about a uh, new friend of mine. Uh, it's the website repairclinic.com. I like to be a uh, do-it-yourselfer, though I'm not very good at it. And uh, my new friend is very helpful because he's allowed me to have some success in repairs of our home appliances. When I consult Repair Clinic, I can find out what the problem likely is, the defective part, what's causing the problem, purchase the part, then I can watch a video that tells me how to take the part out and replace it. Um, it's delightful. I've been able to repair our stove, our uh, dishwasher, our washer and dryer. That's uh, a great fun as a uh, do-it-yourselfer. But when it comes to life, being a do-it-yourselfer, that is, trying to live life apart from God, is guaranteed to be an abysmal failure. And I don't know about you, but for the first 18 years of my life, I was doing anything but pursuing God. And even now, after putting my faith in Jesus for many years, I still have times of seeking my own way and turning from Him and His ways. So today's question that we're going to look at is, what does God do when I continue to turn from Him? What does God do when I continue to turn from Him? King Ahab, uh, whom we met briefly last week, uh, was such a do-it-yourself man, as we will see. Uh, we meet him in 1 Kings chapters 16 to 22. It's actually a long section committed to discussion of the life of one person. God has recorded for us Ahab's continued choices to live life apart from God. And, but God has also recorded how he responds to Ahab in the midst of those choices. Now, we're not going to read chapters 16 to 22 in their entirety. So we can only scratch the surface what is contained here. So I'm assigning to you for homework a detailed reading of those chapters. So sometime today or this week, read those chapters. But I am going to ask you to follow along in your Bibles as we touch the highlights of this extended story that God has preserved for us. And I hope to show you in our journey with Ahab a sobering warning as well as an overwhelming hope. And I don't know where you fit in with this story today, but I'm sure you do. I'm sure we all do somewhere. So just before I pray... I'm going to ask you to individually pray to yourself that God would show you what he has for you today. So let's pray. Father, as Glenn uh, just read from Isaiah, we ask that your word would be preached today and that, as you promise, it will not return empty. We ask that it would accomplish all for which you have sent it out. As we look through the life of Ahab, there are some troubling things about his life. And I ask for those of us who know the story to put aside preconceived ideas. And may we all have soft hearts to hear what you would have for us today. I pray that we would see that though this story is about Ahab, in reality it's really about you. And I pray that you would drive that deeply into our hearts as we look at this today. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So we're going to look at several episodes in Ahab's life, and we're going to start in 1 Kings chapter 16. I invite you to turn there. And we're going to look at who Ahab is and what he is doing, and then what God is doing through that uh, in these parallel tracks. So 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29, says, The 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab the son of Omri began to reign over Israel, and Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Now, the verses go on, but we can easily summarize it in verse 30. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And if you read through the kings, that is saying a lot, that he did more than all who were before him. And down in verse 33, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings who were before him. And again, that is quite, an, quite a statement when you see and you read about the kings who came before him. Did more evil on the side of the Lord, did more to provoke the Lord to anger than all who went before him. When you think of a person in history who is an example of evil, who do you think of? Any ideas? Well, we hear, think of Hitler. Stalin, perhaps, Osama bin Laden, and there's a record, and these are just within our frame of reference through the centuries there have been people who are evil. I believe this is the kind of description God is giving us here of who this man is. It's not like he made a few mistakes. This is a man who was committed, completely and continually committed, to turn from God and to pursue life on his terms as a do-it-yourselfer. And we find in, this, in these verses in in 1 Kings 16, that his wholehearted worship actually was of the false god, Baal. Baal. Now, I'm going to tell you something about Baal. You're going to have to remember this. Baal was worshipped as the storm god, the god of storms. He was the god who controlled the rain and the lightning. That's what they believed. So that's who Ahab is. God characterized him as the most evil of all the kings who went before him. Well, how does God respond to Ahab's rejection of him and his worship of Baal? Well, jump now to, well, jump, just walk. Uh, 1 Kings 17, verse 1. Now, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. God's prophet, Elijah, who is speaking for God. Elijah is not speaking for himself. He's speaking for God. He announces that there will be no more rain until he says so. Elijah says there will be no more rain until he says so. Now, this is no random announcement. Remember? Who is Baal? He's the storm god. He's in charge of the rain. Well, God is now stopping the rain. When God stops the rain through Elijah, God is declaring that he alone, not Baal, is the one true God who has all authority and power. He alone is worthy of all trust. God is usurping Baal by stopping the rain. So what does God do when Ahab continues to turn from him? Well, when Ahab turns from God, God graciously pursues Ahab. By displaying his power over Baal, God is appealing to Ahab to turn from Baal to God. And how does Ahab respond to God? 
That's it. Nothing. He totally misses the point of God stopping the rain. He does not allow the drought and the resulting famine to bring about a change of heart. And he continues to live life his way. But in another episode, Ahab gets another chance. Now you can walk over to 1 Kings 18, verse 1. After many days, and this is three years later, by the way, after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So three years later, after God stops the rain, it's not rain now for three years, God sends Elijah to Ahab again, but now with two demonstrations. Now, the first demonstration, I hope, maybe, anybody remember last week? If you remember last week, we talked about Elijah gathers the 450 prophets of Baal, along with Ahab, with the instructions that each, that is, Elijah and the 450 prophets of Baal, are going to build an altar and offer a sacrifice. But instead of lighting the fire under the sacrifice, which they normally do, each is going to ask their God to send fire. Now, why is that a good test for Baal? Baal's the storm god. He's in charge of not only the rain, but the lightning, the fire from the sky. So this should be well within Baal's job description. Baal and his prophets fail to deliver after an all-day prayer and worship session. And we read later in, in that chapter that God answers Elijah's very simple prayer with an all-consuming fire that far exceeds the minimal standard of lighting the fire of the sacrifice. Do you remember when God sends the fire, it consumes the bull, the wood, the stones, the dust, and the water that Elijah had poured over the altar just to make sure that he wasn't cheating in any way. God answered with an overwhelming response of sending fire. But the important thing to notice here, not only is God's power over Baal demonstrated, but we see God's heart demonstrated here. And if you look in chapter 18, verse 37, Elijah offers this prayer, very simple prayer, before God sends the fire. And in verse 37, Elijah says this, Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. God is revealing his heart here. Why is he doing this contest? Is he doing this contest as a power play to show that he's big and able to do this? No, he's doing this because he wants Ahab and his people to know that he is the true God and that he desires their hearts would turn back to him. God wants them to know that he is the true God and that he wants to turn their hearts back to him. This is God's desire. This is always God's desire for them as well as for us. Well, that was the first demonstration. The second demonstration, if you look later in, in chapter 18, in verse 41, Elijah says to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there's a sound of the rushing of rain. The uh, author here tells us that Elijah goes up to the top of Mount Carmel and prays for rain. And if you look at verse 45, and a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. Not just a little rain, not a sprinkle, not a drizzle, a great rain. 
So what did God just do for Baal? He totally upstaged Baal, first with the sacrifice of sending fire, and now three years later, after there being no rain, sending a great rain at the prayers of Elijah. The storm god who controls the rain and the lightning miserably fails to deliver on both counts. And God's appeal, as we've already seen, is that for, to tell Ahab that he has been putting his trust, his confidence, in the wrong place. He's trusting the wrong things. So what does God do when Ahab continues to turn from him? Well, when Ahab continues to turn from God, God continues to graciously pursue Ahab. And here, God demonstrates again that he is more worthy of Ahab's trust than is Baal. Well, with that, how does Ahab respond this time? That's it. Same response. Nothing. He continues his do-it-yourself life. Well, let's skip over now to 1 Kings 20. Ahab gets another chance. Ahab gets another chance. 1 Kings 20 records that at two different times, Ahab goes into battle against an overwhelming Syrian army. As we've seen, Ahab has not turned to faith in God as a result of all that God has done before. And if you read this chapter, there is no indication that Ahab sought God's help in any way for these battles. You read of kings in the scriptures who are facing overwhelming odds, and they will go to the Lord and say, God, we need your help. There is no indication here that Ahab in any way turned to God for help in these battles. But at both times, God takes the initiative by sending another prophet, a prophet different from Elijah, to Ahab. And the message is the same both times. So again, in 1 Kings 20, verse 13, look what he says. And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. You shall know that I am the Lord. Again, you see God's heart. His desire in this is that they would know that he is the Lord. There is nothing or no one else worthy of trust and confidence. He alone is God. Both times, Ahab wins decisive victories in battle against overwhelming odds. Both times. God's message to Ahab could not be more clear. I am the one who can and will give you victory over your enemies and my desire is that you will know that I am the Lord. God is clearly communicating to Ahab that whatever problems or challenges you're facing in life, I am the one who can give you victory over those things, and my desire is that you will know that I am the Lord. So what does God do when Ahab continues to turn from him? When Ahab continues to turn from God, God continues to graciously pursue Ahab. Here, in the face of overwhelming forces, God wants Ahab to know him as the one true God. Surely, by this time, we ask the question, and how does Ahab respond? Nothing. He continues his do-it-yourself life. Well, in the next episode we look at, this is in chapter 21, Ahab wants something that's not his. 
In the early verses of chapter 21 in 1 Kings, a man named Naboth has a vineyard, a vineyard that is right next to Ahab's palace. And Ahab wants that vineyard for a vegetable garden. And he offers to Naboth to buy it from him or to replace it with another vineyard. But let's look what happens in 1 Kings 21, verses 3 and 4. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my father's. And Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my father's. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. Naboth says, no, this has been in my family. This is the inheritance of my father's. I'm going to respect that and honor that. I'm not going to give it up. And how does Ahab respond? Those of us with young children recognize this, right? He pouts. This is the king of Israel, right? The king of Israel, the big guy, he's in charge. He doesn't get what he wants, so he pouts. He goes into his house, vexed and sullen. He lays down on his bed, turns away his face, said, no, I'm not going to eat anything. He pouts. If it wasn't so tragic in its outcome, it's really a very childish, silly, foolish response, is it not? I don't know if any of you are aware of this. It was included in a child's song years ago called The Poochie Lip. When Ahab didn't get what he wanted, he just stuck out his lip and was all sorry because he couldn't get what he wanted. Well, as you read through 1 Kings 21, his wife, Queen Jezebel, takes matters into her own hands. She has Naboth falsely accused of blaspheming the king and God and stoned to death. She then informs Ahab that he can now have the vineyard, which he goes in to possess. He gets out of his bed and, I guess, starts eating again and goes down to the vineyard to take ownership. Well, how does God respond to this? And as we read, there's a sense in which this was the last straw. So God sends Elijah to Ahab one last time but this time with a very stinging rebuke. I direct your attention to 1 Kings 21. And in verse 17 or verse 18, God tells Elijah, Arise and go to meet Ahab, king of Israel, in, whose, in, his, in Samaria. And this is what you are to tell him. In verse 19, You shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, in the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. Ahab says to Elijah, have you found me, my enemy? He, Elijah, answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond and free, in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger which you have provoked me and because you have made Israel to sin. God pronounces final judgment on Ahab's household, essentially removing any family legacy with no descendants to carry on his name and his family. What a harsh, harsh discipline. 
And just to be sure we don't miss the significance of this event in Ahab's life, the author gives us a summary of his life. If you look in verses 25 and 26, there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. He didn't just act abominably, which is horrible. He acted very abominably, which is very horribly. And if you look at that, it reads exactly the same as at the beginning of the story where we started in 1 Kings 16. Nothing has changed over the 22 years of Ahab's reign as king in spite of all the chances that God gave him over those 22 years. How many times did God come to Ahab and say, I want you to know that I am the Lord, that I can be trusted, that your heart would be turned to me. I am the Lord, turn your heart to me. I am the Lord, turn your heart to me. I am the Lord, turn your heart to me. The very next chapter, 1 Kings 22, describes Ahab going into one final battle with the Syrian army, and this time he dies in battle. It is all over. God has pursued him again and again and again, all which he refused. Well, how do we feel when an evil person gets what's coming to them? There's a part of us that say, you know, this ending is fair. It's right. It's just. He had it coming. Evil has had its day, and now it's put to an end. And if this is how this story ended, we would feel, at least I would, and maybe you would too, that it's all now nicely tied up in a nice package with a nice pretty little bow. But this is not the whole story of Ahab's life. So fasten your seatbelts as we look at something different. Look at Ahab's response. Remember what we said when God shows his mercy, his grace to Ahab, how does Ahab respond? Let's look at how he responds to this one after Elijah speaks to him regarding Naboth's murder. We see this in verses 27 to 29 of 1 Kings 21. And when Ahab heard those words, that is the words of God's judgment on him and his household, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. His response here is sad, but it's not pouting. It's in humble repentance. The tearing of clothes, the wearing of sackcloth, the mourning, the sadness that he has. For the first time in his life, Ahab responds to God's intervention in his life with humility and repentance. Repentance, a turning away from his sinful ways. And I find this so touching when you read this. God even makes a point of pointing it out to Elijah as a grateful parent who's celebrating, who's taking pleasure in a major turnaround of, in a wayward child's life. God has just pronounced this final judgment, and when Ahab repents, 
God tells Elijah, have you seen how Elijah has humbled himself before me? He's rejoicing. He's celebrating because that's been his desire all along for Ahab. That you would know that I am the Lord and that your heart would turn back to me. So even though this was the last straw for Ahab's earthly existence, God's discipline in Ahab's life accomplished what God had been pursuing all along. Now Ahab had no reason to expect God was going to do anything else for him, yet God gives him yet one more chance, which proves to be the deciding one. And here we see, as we look at Ahab's story, that God is patient, loving, kind, long-suffering, and relentlessly pursuing Ahab, desiring that he turn to God as the one true God. In William Smith's words in the book Caught Off Guard, in his section on Ahab, he says this, I am simply amazed at what I learned from Ahab. I encounter a God who truly does not delight in the death of the wicked, but rather offers them many opportunities to turn. So what does God do when Ahab continues to turn from him? When Ahab continues to turn from God, God continues to graciously pursue Ahab. In the face of Ahab's relentless pursuit of evil, selfish interests, God relentlessly pursues Ahab. So, what do we learn from Ahab's life and God's dealings with Ahab? I believe Ahab's story has for us both a sobering warning and an overwhelming hope. First, the sobering warning. As we saw with Ahab, God is indeed patient. He relentlessly and graciously pursues over and over and over and over and over. He gives multiple opportunities to turn to him. He is the God of the second chance, the third chance, the fourth chance, the fifth chance, the sixth, the seventh, the eighth. And as I was reflecting on this, I'm thinking now of two kinds of people. The first are those who we would call unbelievers, those who have not put their faith in God, those who have not put their faith in Jesus Christ. Perhaps you're here today and you've heard that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. And you have heard the invitation to put your trust in him. But up to now, you've refused. You have hardened your heart against accepting him. You have questions. You have objections. You have reasons. But you're really not taking steps to answer your questions, your objections, and your reasons about this all-important invitation. Or perhaps you're a believer, you have put your faith in Jesus, but your heart is hardened towards him. Your heart has grown cold towards some of the things of God, the Bible, God's people, God's church. You're not seeking God's ways. There are things that God has tried to address in your life, but you have resisted. There's a sense in which you're still being a do-it-yourselfer. Well, God's word to both of you the unbeliever who has heard the invitation and has not accepted, and the believer who has hardened the heart to some degree towards God, the invitation is the same. The door to come to him is still open. The door to come to him is still open. And I'm going to be direct here. I don't usually like to do this, but I'm going to do it. Would you just stop messing around 
stop to do it yourself. His invitation is open. Humble yourself and turn to God. Humble yourself, repent, and turn to God. And the question is then, when should you do this? Well, the writer of the Hebrews says it this way in Hebrews 4, verse 7. He says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. God freely extends his invitation to every person to put their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, for a turning of their heart back to God, and for restoration of a relationship with God. And the invitation is for today. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, not tomorrow. My son-in-law, Mick, is a very skillful craftsman. I admire him a lot. He's an outdoorsman, a woodsman. He's managing the trees on their property, including for their firewood. But even more impressively to me is he will cut down a tree and with hand tools will turn it into a beam for the house or post pillars for the barn. Just a, a, I just, I'm amazed at what he is able to accomplish and what he does. He and I were chatting some time ago as we were talking about how he manages the, the trees. And he says, you know, I once heard that there are two good times to plant a tree. There are two good times to plant a tree. The best time is 20 years ago. You know when the next best time is? Today. Today. The best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is today. In the same way, there are two good times to put your faith in God and to live for Him. The best time is yesterday. Last week, last year, 40 years ago, 60 years ago. But what's the second best time? Now. Today. Not tomorrow. There is no guarantee of tomorrow. We have a great example in the scriptures of this. I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke 23 if you'd like to follow along. This is the part of Luke where Luke is describing Jesus' crucifixion. And if you remember when Jesus was crucified, nailed to that cross, he was hung on that cross between two criminals, two thieves. And in Luke 23, we'll start at verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This man had led a life apart from God that led him to a sinful, violent act that was now leading to his early death by execution. But at the last possible moment, he humbles himself, acknowledges his guilt. He says here, we are just receiving the due reward of our deeds. He acknowledges his guilt, and he puts his faith in Jesus. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come 
into your kingdom. Jesus recognizes his humility, forgives him, and promises him a place in heaven. And why can Jesus even do that? Because at that very moment, Jesus is dying on that cross, not to pay for his own sins, but for the sins of every human being who ever lived, whoever will live, including that thief that was being crucified next to him. And in three days from that time, Jesus would rise from the dead, defeating evil, sin, and death once for all time and eternity. See, this man and his fellow criminal did not have tomorrow. They only had today. And one of them took advantage of it. It made all the difference for eternity. Now, as we've said, earlier is always better than later, but be assured that there is always hope as long as it is today, as long as it is still today. So there is the sobering warning. Today, do not harden your hearts. But what about the overwhelming hope? What if you are a believer who regularly humbles yourself before God? You're not straying from him. You've not hardened your heart. Ahab's story should give you great hope in at least two areas. First, for your own life, you know you're not sinless. You know you're not perfect. But you are keeping your eyes on Jesus while facing the daily ups and downs of life. Ahab's story encourages us to be stunned and amazed at God's overwhelming and persistent grace that will not stop pursuing us. He will not stop pursuing us until every last bit of sin is removed from our hearts and our lives, and he will not stop pursuing us until we are safely home with him forever. Paul says this in Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. For those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, God has promised that he will relentlessly pursue us to draw us ever closer to him, that we would know that he is the Lord, that our hearts are drawn to him, and he will remove every last remaining piece of sin from our lives and will deliver us safely to his kingdom to live with him forever. So that's our first bit of hope as believers for ourselves. But there's a second piece What about loved ones who don't know him? What about wayward loved ones who once followed him but have now turned away? And I know if we went around, we would find many people who are in one or both of those categories. Ahab's story teaches us that God will continue to relentlessly pursue those lost or wandering ones. Did you hear that? Ahab's story teaches us that God will continue to relentlessly pursue those lost or wandering ones. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter is addressing an issue where people had said, you know, Jesus has promised to come back, God has promised to come back and set up his kingdom, and it's been going on for a long time, and he has not come back yet. He's promised and promised and promised, and where is he? Peter says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, 
but that all should reach repentance. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. There are some of us here that if Jesus came back 10 years ago, we would not be believers. If Jesus came back 20 years ago, we would not be believers. But God is not slow, as some count slowness. He's patient, waiting for all to come to repentance. Ahab's story teaches us that God will continue to relentlessly pursue those lost or wandering ones. This does not guarantee the outcome. I can't promise you that you wait long enough or pray hard enough that they will come to the Lord. But be sure of this. God graciously pursues. God graciously pursues. And he will never stop as long as it is called today. Well, let's wrap this up. God dedicated 1 Kings chapter 16 to 22 to tell us about King Ahab. And as I said before, you, before, I invite you to take time to read those chapters because we were not able to go into a lot of the details. But as you go through that, do it not just to notice Ahab's evil life or perhaps even the great exploits of the prophet Elijah, but as you do so, notice how God responds to Ahab, as we've looked at today. Again, referring to William Smith in Caught Off Guard, he says, even more illuminating than Ahab's commitment to evil is God's commitment to Ahab. Even more illuminating than Ahab's commitment to evil is God's commitment to Ahab. So where do you fit in? Do you need to hear the sobering warning? Are you an unbeliever or a believer who has hardened your heart? Do you need to be reminded of the overwhelming hope? You struggle on the daily journey of your own life and your own sins and your own struggles or concerns for wandering or unsaved loved ones. Wherever you fit in, hear these words of Jesus in John 6, 37 and be reassured of his promise. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever comes to me, I will never, never cast out. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would take these things that we've looked at this morning from the life of Ahab, a life that was distinguished by a man who continually turned away from you despite your continued pursuits, and yet you relentlessly pursued without stop, and at one point in time, his heart was broken. He humbled himself before you and repented. And I pray, Father, that this would bring the warning and the hope to all of us. Help us to realize that life is serious, that eternity is serious. Help us to realize that today is the day of salvation, that today we should not harden our hearts. We, don't, we are not guaranteed tomorrow, but help us, Lord, to trust in you today, wherever we are. 
And I pray, Father, that as we consider Ahab's life, that we would consider you, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, that you are the same God who took care of Ahab. You are the same one who takes care of us and watches over us. And we are grateful and hopefully overwhelmed that you have promised to relentlessly pursue us until every last remaining bit of sin is removed from our lives and from this world and that we are safely home in your kingdom with you, living with you forever. And so, Lord, we pray that you would drive these truths deep into our hearts and lives and may they change, may these truths change us, not just give us new knowledge, but change our lives as we rest in you, as we realize that you alone are Lord there's nothing else in this world that is worth comparing to you, that is worth following, that is worth putting our trust in. And I pray, Father, that our hearts would turn to you on a regular basis. In Jesus' name, amen.